Pastor Mike, and this is week three of our series, Fortune Cookie Wisdom, where we are exploring the concept of wisdom in the Bible and what it means to seek God's wisdom over and against our own over the course of our daily lives. And thus far in our series, we've sat with the wisdom literature, which are these Old Testament books that explicitly explore the pursuit of wisdom by human beings. Those books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. Now, today, we're gonna conclude the book of Job. And if you didn't know this, this is actually our second sermon on Job. So, if you missed last week, I highly recommend you go back, you check it out on our podcast or our Vimeo, you get caught up. However, please do not leave if that is the case. I will make sure you can follow along, okay? Sound good? But, before getting into Job, let's talk about astronomy. Woo! You see, in college, I took astronomy on a whim because I just needed to check off that box of a science credit, and y'all, it blew my mind. Our universe is crazy, y'all. Did anyone else know this? The cosmos, they're insane. Sometimes, my mind got blown by simple, trivial facts. For example, every planet in our solar system can fit between the Earth and the moon. That's 238 thousand miles, and yet the closest a planet comes to us in its orbit, Venus, only comes within 25 million miles. For those who can't do math, that's like 100 times the distance. I also can't do math. That might be wrong. Don't check it. Other times, my mind was blown by the universe's complexity and vastness. For example, Starlight takes so long to reach us when we look at the night sky that we're actually peering into the past. The Hubble telescope can look as far as 13 billion years ago. With a B. Or how about this? There are at least three sextillion stars in the universe. For those who don't know, that's three followed by 23 zeros. That is more than every grain of sand on this earth combined. More often, though, it was blown from learning about things so mysterious that they transcend our understanding. Like that almost every galaxy, including our own, contains a seemingly dormant, massive black hole at its center. And y'all, we don't really know why. We aren't sure if the black hole spawned galaxies or if the black holes respond by the formation of galaxies. The science community is like, big shrug. Or that ordinary observable matter, stars, planets, us, only comprises 5% of the known universe. The rest of that, 95% of our universe in terms of matter and energy, is comprised by either invisible dark matter, which we only know exists because of how its gravity tugs on visible matter, or invisible dark energy, which fills all of space, accelerates cosmic expansion, and about which we know next to nothing. Y'all, every day I remember sitting in that classroom recalling Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yep, where there's this booth that you walk into and it shows you exactly how small you are in the universe and it makes anyone who goes into it go completely insane. Every day, I came into contact with things so far beyond my human comprehension that I felt every emotion there is, awe, bafflement, terror, but above all, deep, profound humility. 
This humble awareness that the more I knew about this mysterious, vast universe, the more I realized how little I will ever truly know. And I start here because that's at the heart of Job's conclusion, where we're going today. But before we dive into that, let's recap briefly where we've been. Remember, Job is this metaphorical story that's essentially a long thought exercise, a story that begins with this two-chapter, short, fictional introduction about this perfectly righteous dude named Job who suffers greatly for reasons completely unknowable to him and without him having sinned. In other words, despite having done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve it, he begins to suffer, all of which sets up the brunt of the book. This 35-chapter debate between Job and his friends comprised entirely of dense theological poems that all debate the nature of suffering. Some questions that we all find pretty relatable. Why do good people suffer? Should God always operate his universe by constantly rewarding and punishing behavior immediately, right after it happens? Can we trust a God if he has a universe where suffering occurs without moral cause? What is wisdom in such a place? And from that, we found this core argument form, which is what we explored the most last week. Essentially, it goes like this. If God is just, Injustice is black and white, do good things, God rewards you immediately, do bad things, God punishes you immediately. Then as Job argued, his suffering is undeserved, which makes God incompetent. He doesn't know how to run his universe according to how it should be operated. Or as his friends argued in response, it actually means that Job must have sinned to deserve his suffering. He must have done something wrong or else he wouldn't be in such a bad place. And what's fascinating about the book of Job is that from the beginning, as readers, we are told that this is fundamentally incorrect. That all of these arguments in some way fundamentally misrepresent God and how he operates his universe. And what's super mysterious, what's super fascinating is that through 35 chapters, this entire debate, God doesn't say a word. He remains completely silent. And he's blah, 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 bicker back and forth. That is until chapter 38, where he finally speaks. And he decides to respond to this debate by taking Job to astronomy class, which turns upside down their vision of suffering and justice and everything in between entirely. We pick up in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Bad start, by the way. You don't want God to answer you from the whirlwind. That's all I'm saying. Who is this darkening counsel with words lacking knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I will interrogate you and you will respond to me. And we're like, oh, snap, Job's gonna get it, right? And what we're expecting is for God to knuckle up and to start one by one addressing every misrepresentation, every wrong idea, because that's how we would defend ourselves against false accusation. But he doesn't. You see, God neither responds to any individual point that's been raised, nor does he address the why of suffering. Instead, mysteriously, he gives these three dense poetic speeches that feel totally out of left field. And they're long, so I'm just going to highlight examples from each of the three, and that's how we're going to approach today. So, what we see first is that God begins by taking Job through a tour of the entire universe. It begins in Job 38 verse 4. 
He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you know. Who set its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring tape on it? On what were its footings sunk? Who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang in unison and all the divine beings shouted? Who enclosed the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, the dense clouds its wrap, when I imposed my limit for it, put a bar and doors and said, you may come this far no further. Here your proud waves stop. By the way, that's one of my favorite pieces of scripture in the entire Bible. But what we see is that God asked Job, where were you when I created everything? Can you explain how that happened? With the obvious implication being you weren't there and you can't, right? And though it's super cool, is from here, over the course of this first speech, as God begins zooming in, he describes ordering the stars in the skies, weather patterns, all the way down to specific animal biology, all to highlight these two key points. First, Job's incredibly limited perspective on how life on earth works, much less thermonuclear radiation. And second, that if you actually observe our world and how it works, this God obviously does not operate his universe purely by black and white simple justice. For example, in ancient societies, rain was viewed as the blessing of God for righteous behavior by human beings. But in Job, God shows Job this fascinating thing. He says, I send rain to grow plants in these wilderness places, these wastelands that no human being will ever see, simply because I'm a God who enjoys growing life and being generous for its own sake. He asked Job, where does that fit into your simplistic worldview, your black and white justice for how you must think I should operate my universe? In other words, God highlights our limited human perspective, our finiteness in an infinite universe, which is humbling. We can believe that our perspective from where we stand is the only perspective, that we are the center of the universe but God begins in Job by fundamentally rejecting that. We lack his infinite perspective of these wildly internet-connected cosmos. So how could we, as human beings, correct how it operates? How could we claim God's incompetent? And the universe isn't just about us, God highlights. We're one piece of this greater whole that this God is attentive to, that this God cares about. Then, from there, God flows into speech too, further undermining their view of simple justice. We read in Job chapter 40, verse eight, would you discredit my justice, God says? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them hello. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. And what God gets to over the course of this next poem is simply this. He says, Job, imagine if you operated the universe for even 24 hours with your simplistic micromanager vision of justice rewarding good behavior, punishing bad behavior immediately, what would happen? There'd be no life on it, is what God's trying to get at. An infinite universe can't be governed that way because nothing would be able to change or grow. 
It would be a program, a simulation, the matrix, right? Not a space of freedom, life, thriving relationships, which inherently require conflict. And finally, in speech three, God challenges Job to accept the paradoxes clearly embedded in our universe. And this is the most mysterious speech. He does this by describing two gigantic beasts. First, this beast called the behemoth, which is described as an ox-like creature with a long cedar-like tree tail and iron limbs that's too powerful for any human being to subdue. And then this other dragon-like creature called the Leviathan, which is described in Job chapter 41. A couple of the pieces of that scripture. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook, God asks, or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. And like I said, this section is the most mysterious. The behemoth in particular has no biblical reference point. It's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, which when misread literally has led people to assume it's a hippopotamus. But y'all, I've never seen a hippo with a long cedar-like tail. Have you? I've been to a lot of zoos. Rachel, have you seen a hippo with iron limbs? Okay, no, misses the point. Now you see the behemoth, what we know from history, symbolized chaos in Israel's surrounding culture. This untamable beast that is let loose on earth that no human can seem to subdue, which pairs perfectly as a metaphor with the Leviathan, which is a known symbolic mythological creature in the biblical text. You see, if you read Psalm 74, the Leviathan symbolizes the chaotic nothingness that existed before creation, which God tamed when he spoke creation into being, bringing order to chaos so life could thrive in the universe as we know it. Then in Isaiah, in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, God is described as defeating Leviathan when he removes chaos from creation to end his story. Together, these beasts symbolize the unpredictable, chaotic elements still existing in God's good world. And when we combine that with speech one, with God's tour of the ordered cosmos, we get a profound image of this universe. It's ordered, it's beautiful, but simultaneously, there are still realities within it that are neither evil nor malicious, but wildly, wildly dangerous. Chaotic, uncontrollable, unpredictable, Thus, in this world that exists between Eden and the moment when God slays Leviathan to make all things right, suffering can result simply because this place is still, at times, a dangerous, chaotic place. Has anyone seen that in our world? See, what God's doing here, I believe, is he's inviting us into the paradox of life in a universe defined by both order and disorder, life and death, beauty and suffering, all paradoxically mixed together and inseparable. And of course, in such a place, a black and white vision of reality cannot be all we rely on for navigation. Such either or, dualistic, 
thinking only knows how to deny or explain away mystery. And y'all, that destroys any hope for navigating something as mysterious and unexplainable as suffering, does it not? See, I love this. And though this response to suffering might feel unsatisfying to us, we might have wanted God to go through the checklist to explain to us why. I think that God knows that our problem isn't not knowing why. It's our limited consciousness that in arrogant ignorance simplifies mystery and thinks that we can know everything and that we're in total control of this universe with all the short-sightedness and all the pain that creates. God knows that what we actually need in suffering is wisdom for navigating a complex, mysterious, strange, complicated world. Which is why I love Job's ending. Through God's astronomy class, Job opens himself to God's wisdom of suffering in this beautiful final response that we find in chapter 42. We read, Job answered the Lord, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Wanders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent or repent and find comfort on dust and ashes. This is a dense response, so I want to walk through it a little bit because I think it's profound. What we're getting at here is that Job approached God with his suffering. He wrestled with it. He was humbled by it. He accepted it. And ultimately, he was changed through it in light of who God is. I know you can do anything. Recognition that God's wisdom is greater than his own. I've spoken about things I didn't understand. Humility, accepting mystery, accepting his own limited perspective on the universe. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. The willingness to see and accept reality as it is, not as he wished it would be. Therefore, I relent a full change of consciousness in how he sees the world, and I find comfort on dust and ashes, peace that can hold the totality of this life, not just the parts of it we like. A peace that can include what he'd previously only been able to deny and resist is suffering, dust and ashes. That's where he can find comfort now. And then ultimately, to conclude the book, God rebukes Job's friends. He affirms that Job's suffering was undeserved and Job's fortunes are restored, which is another one of those potential misunderstanding points if we read this wrong. You see, this isn't about Job re-earning his blessing from repentance. That would contradict literally the rest of the book. It's also not erasing his suffering. Like, it's all good, fam. Here are some new kids. You can forget about the ones that died. No, Job's blessed again because that's just how life in this universe goes. It's defined by seasons, cycles, and change. Love and loss, life and death, blessing and want. But now, and this is the beautiful part, now Job can accept that without blaming God or himself. He can embrace 
seasons of want and abundance, beauty and chaos, suffering and joy, because he sees that God is in all of it and that all of it is a gift. I think Job finds serenity in suffering that's grounded in humble awareness of his finiteness, the embrace of mystery and trust in an infinitely wise God who actually can see and direct this universe as it should be. Job never explains the why of suffering. Instead, it reminds us that this universe is full of things too complex for our boxes, behemoth, leviathan, things that can only be accepted. And thus, wisdom is doing right, knowing that we may still suffer. But when we do, Instead of lobbing accusations, demanding explanations, denying pain or despairing, we can let suffering upend our dualistic thinking. We can embrace mystery, paradox, and we can reckon with hard things about ourselves and this complex world. And through that, we can let God transform and redeem our suffering into the soil of acceptance, gratitude, peace, and trust. Y'all, is that beautiful or is it not? I love the book of Job. And though heady, I'm so drawn to Joan over and over again because I have found this to be so true to my lived experience on this earth. I have found in it the humbling infiniteness of creation. I remember learning about the Big Bang for the first time and being absolutely floored that all matter, energy, everything existed in a singularity which mysteriously exploded outwards, it expanded, it consolidated into a galaxy and then into a solar system and then into a planet and then in 1990, me. Which meant that I was a piece of the universe learning about and finding meaning in the universe that in the trippiest way possible, I was the universe reflecting upon itself. And y'all, that's become even more amazing as a Christian because what I'm actually reflecting upon in those moments is my creator. We are the image of God reflecting upon God. Let that blow your mind. And it's not just an intellectual exercise anymore. It's the author of the universe that shaped me from stardust to experience this life and to love and know him. What a gift. That is humbling, is it not? And I've also at times found the serenity that can become through opening ourselves to awareness of that truth. In my worst depressions, I used to stare at the stars and feel peace knowing that there was something in the sky that I couldn't mess up no matter how hard I tried. And that may sound morbid, but as a control freak, my natural mode is to desperately believe that I can micromanage my life to avoid all suffering. And that this universe revolves around me and what I do, the choices I make. And that may be comforting when things are good, but it's incapable of handling suffering. Attempting to control suffering just feeds the worst parts of me. Denial and escapism when confronted with death. Anger and resentment when confronted with a lost relationship. Self-pity, apathy, and despair when confronted with broken dreams. The only times I have suffered well is when I have embraced this wisdom. 
surrendered to an infinite God who is in control of the cosmos while acknowledging that I am not. And y'all, that's good news. That's the only thing that's ever let me accept what I can control. Stop obsessing over what I can't and live in reality as it is. And when I do that, I can look at the stars and know that regardless of what may be, my God loves me, my God directs me, my God holds the cosmos in his hands, and that I am not responsible for holding the universe together. I'm only responsible for doing what I can do, controlling what I can control in this given moment, which is myself, nothing else. And I can trust my wise creator with the rest. That is a peace that transcends understanding. And it can transform and redeem suffering, even if it doesn't get rid of suffering. See, I've come to understand suffering like astronomy. Something from my finite perspective that's mysterious and beyond my ability to ever fully comprehend or understand why. And when I accept that, and I humbly trust within my suffering, what I find is that I stop asking why and I stop or start asking how. Not why do I suffer, but how do I suffer? How do I respond to this suffering in a way that grows more life, that grows more peace, that grows more love, hope, joy, mercy in the world? And that's a game changer. With that, I have healed. And I've helped others heal too through shared pain. With that, I have given and received grace in the worst wounds. I've learned from what felt hopeless. I have watched God grow life from spaces I thought could only be dead ground. So to close, reflect during this last song on how Job's wisdom might rewrite our vision of suffering and what redemption even means, how it might guide us into a serenity that can hold worries, pain, beauty, joy in the same hand by finding and trusting this mysterious, infinite, wise God everywhere, even in the places of this strange cosmos that I could never possibly understand. That's wisdom within the mystery of suffering. That's a gift. That's the gift of Job. Amen? Amen.